The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Uh, my name is Alec Epkus. Um, I am happy to be here with, with you this morning. Um, if you do not know me, perhaps to most of you I, I, I look a bit familiar, but for those of you that don't, my wife Ashley and I are members of Sacred City Moline. We are a part of the Park Hill Missional Community. We have two daughters and Ruby and Ellie. Their ages are three and a year and a half. And we were originally part of the Moline Church plant a year and a half ago. And actually, five years before that, we were part of the Sacred City Davenport Church plant. So we've been around for some time. This is only my fourth time preaching in the life of Sacred City Church. I'm not a vocational pastor. I'm essentially an accountant by day, and it is my joy to preach the Word of God to you this morning. If this is your first time here with us, we welcome you. We've been going through a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It's called Ecclesiastes, and this is actually our second to last week of our series in Ecclesiastes, and though I think much could probably be said of our, of our time so far in Ecclesiastes and perhaps what the Lord has done in us. It's important to know that we're getting ready to enter into what is the last section of the book, and it covers multiple topics, but it really has one theme, which is this. How do we live joyously and responsibly in this life while also having a fear and revere of the Lord as we go throughout this life? And that's kind of the page that we're, that we're turning uh, today. So our text is brief. It's only six verses. Sam, Sam made it easy for me. The other, the other texts that we've been going through are like 20 verses at a time. So he was gracious to me in that. But uh, my prayer as we, as we go through this text this morning is that it would be a compelling demonstration of our need for Jesus, the salvation that he provides, and the grace that all of us need, that we need on a daily basis as we go throughout this life. So if you could, uh, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll go ahead and get started. And actually, before we do that, let's let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that you are the one that spun the galaxies into existence. Um, But as as we go through verses 1 through 6 today, we'll also learn that you are incredibly involved in your creation to the extent that Scripture says that you formed us in our mother's womb, that you know every hair on our head, that you know every desire that we have, every fear, every sense of anxiety that we have in this life. And God, as we go through this text this morning, would you give us a context for what it looks like to live freely and adventurously in this life with all of the anxieties and worries that, that come with it, Um, underneath, uh, in your comfort, and underneath the palm of your hand, that we would know the rest that you give us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Father, I pray that you would um, speak through me, um, that that your spirit would be effectual this morning. Um, I know it isn't through uh, winsome words that people have their hearts changed. It's only through the work of your spirit. And so, Father, I, I entrust that work to you this morning. I ask that you would, that we ask that you would do something that only, that only you could do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I wanted to start our time together this morning by sharing a story. Uh, Herman Melville was a novelist during the American Renaissance, and in the 19th century he wrote a story called Redburn. 
And the story follows a young man named Wellingboro Redburn who is from the Midwest but decides that he would like to go and find his familial roots in Liverpool, England. Uh, specifically, Redburn wanted to find his old ancestral home, and the only thing that he had to guide his travels was a map. It was a map that had been given to him by his family members, but it was from two or three generations earlier. Okay, so it was about 40 or 50 years old. And as the story goes, after a long journey, Redburn arrives in Liverpool, and to his trauma, right, to his confusion, he realizes that Liverpool has undergone dramatic changes. The roads are all different. New buildings have been erected, and the map that was supposed to be his guide was outdated. Now, one of the great concerns that I think people have about biblical questions and answers is that we ask the question, does the map still work? Does it still get us to where we need to go? Does it still, does it still apply to me? And what we've tried to illustrate so far in the series on Ecclesiastes is, is that the preacher is right when he says that there is nothing new under the sun. Despite incredible advances in technology and medicine and infrastructure, the questions that plagued humanity thousands of years ago, they still plague us today. Questions like, why does pain exist? Why is there so much injustice and evil in this world? And where do we derive meaning in this life? Now, I think what's interesting about the Bible is that it not only validates our questions, right, as we've seen in this series on Ecclesiastes, but it also gives us an origin story, a context for beginnings, and an ultimate solution for these things, these, these questions, these problems that we have. Now, in recent weeks, Ecclesiastes has become very practical in talking about life under the sun and how we should relate ourselves to different areas of life, and today is no different. Today we come to a text that is about economics, oddly enough. And the preacher is going to discuss some fundamental themes of finance, actually, like return on investment and asset diversification. But he's also going to use some really challenging imagery to drive home his points. And if we are not careful, if we're not, if we're not listening well this morning, we can very easily misunderstand or look past what the Lord might have for us in this text. So, as I navigate this text, it's important for you to know that I'm going to approach it really from, really from two different perspectives. The first perspective is a historical perspective. I think this, uh, these six verses in Ecclesiastes, we have to have a sense for the historical context, maybe more so than, than the other weeks that we've been, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We need to understand who the reader is, what their background is, to get a sense for why the preacher is communicating what he is to them. The second one the second perspective we're going to be looking at this text from is a Christian perspective. So <clears throat> the New Testament says that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for instruction, useful for our teaching. So I think the question for us today, being a couple thousand years removed from the author of Ecclesiastes and what he's writing here, the question is, how does this apply to us today and how do we make sense of it now in the context that we're in? And as I do this, I'm going, to highlight, I'm going to highlight what I think are the three truths that the preacher is wanting to communicate to us in this text. And, and they are as, follow, the, as follows. The preacher is going to discuss that, number one, we are a risk-averse people. Secondly, he's going to talk about how we adopted our aversion to risk. And finally, he's going to tell us how God frees us, how God liberates us to live differently. So truth number one, we are a risk-averse people. If you have your Bibles open, please open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1, and, and we'll go ahead and get started. 
Verse 1 reads, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Verse 2 continues to read, Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. I will stop there for a moment, because like I said, we need a bit of a history lesson to, to understand what's going on in this text. And if you're not a history buff, please forgive me for the next six minutes. I hope that you can, you can stay engaged. But it's important for us to know that the Israelites whom the preacher is communicating to in this text dealt with some challenging economic scenarios. Um, most of them lived in the region of Palestine, which we will find out it was risky uh, later on in this text, but it was also meaningful for a couple different reasons. Uh, first of all, Economically, Palestine was a central international trade hub between Asia and Egypt. And many of the people that lived there had income sources derived from agriculture. Okay, so they were, they were farmers. And the farmers in the region at the time dealt with a challenging trade norm that said that they would only get paid after the customer received the goods, which certainly sounds reasonable to us. When we go into a store, we... we get a good, we pay the merchant some cash, it is an exchange, but for the Palestinian farmers at this time, along an international trade route on the Mediterranean Sea, where ships were sunk and plundered often, this could mean that farmers would not see their returns for months, for years, or maybe never. Interestingly, uh, the book of 1 Kings says that Solomon would send out fleets of ships only to see them return once every three years, which perhaps for a king boded well. But for these small business owners in Palestine, these farmers, this just wouldn't have been, this just wouldn't have been possible. It just wouldn't have been viable. Secondly, politically, Palestine was a strategic location in the Middle East that was highly sought after. It was a common place for battle, which often taxed the lands that would typically be harvested. And the farmers at this time carried, very rarely did they carry any form of quality business insurance. So they were used to constantly bracing themselves for political tensions. And finally, Palestine was a challenging place for farmers geographically. If, if you can kind of picture perhaps Palestine in the Middle East for a moment, you know that it's, it's very close to the, to the Mediterranean Sea. And being so close to the Mediterranean Sea, it made it difficult for farmers to predict weather patterns. And predicting weather patterns was vital for a farmer to ensure a vibrant, a vibrant harvest. On a seemingly brilliant day, some winds, some heavy winds, could come in from the west and could completely change the patterns that farmers would have to react to. And sometimes it could devastate their crops. Farmers, the people that are being addressed historically in this text had an aversion to risk for a lot of reasons. And we actually know from Ecclesiastes that some farmers had tried their hand at the trading business and had lost. In chapter 5, the preacher describes people who lost their riches in what he calls a bad venture, which most likely related to this. So with that history lesson and with some of that background uh, context, what's the preacher saying in verses 1 and 2? He's saying this. He's saying to make a risky, bold and radical move. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. What he's talking about there, he's saying, ship your crop. Ship your crop. And by waters, the preacher is saying, ship your crop via the international trade routes, for you will find it after many days. He is saying to make a bold, decisive move that doesn't necessarily have a calculated return. And this would be uncomfortable 
for these farmers. This would be an uncomfortable proposition. And not only because of the tremendous risks that we just outlined, but also because these farmers, they had a lot to lose. We've got to understand that in this time, uh, farming for these Palestinians was a capital-intensive business, which means it required a lot of money, and it was also a very competitive business. And a lot of, these, a lot of times, these dynamics it implied family roots. These businesses were, they were passed down from generations to generations. It was a reminder of, of their heritage, of their values, and where they came from. But it wasn't only a reminder of where they came from, it was an indication of where they were going. Society like today heavily leaned into these status pieces and farmers would leverage their, their crop and their local economies to make strategic gains. And I think, I think this is the, the most important point of, of all this historical background, that, uh, background work that we're doing. Their role as farmers was tightly linked to their identity. It impacted how they viewed themselves and how they were viewed by others. Now, in our text, uh, verse 2, if we go back there, is Solomon encouraging wild, whimsical decisions? No. He says in the next verse, diversify. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. He's saying, distribute your crops among the trade routes. Pirates would plunder ships. Colonies would sink ships off in the Mediterranean Sea. So the, so the preacher is saying, diversify. But the reality is, even with this disclaimer that this preacher is, is providing, that these farmers would not be inclined to do something like ship their crops internationally. They just wouldn't. The risks were, were too high. But I think a good question to ask at this point as, we, as we've looked through verses 1 and 2 is ask, why should they? Why should the preacher's challenge be a challenge? Why should it be something that even entices them? And here's why, I think. It's because the preacher, the, the author, the writer of this text, the preacher has seen what a pattern of life has done to these farmers. As we kind of read between the lines of verses 1 through 6, as we, as we will continue to do, we will see that the preacher's challenge to make bold risks comes because he has seen many Israelite farmers and their families become ruined in the agricultural business. Instead of living adventurously, confidently, and generously, as if the outcomes of their business were ultimately left up to a sovereign king, he sees them holding their commodity close to their chest. He sees them afraid to lose it, afraid of anything that might take it or harm it. <clears throat> as, I was, as I was preparing for this sermon, I um, was reading some, some books and some commentaries behind it, and as I started to get a sense for the direction of the text and this character that was kind of emerging in the text, it reminded me, this farmer uh, character reminded me a lot of a character in the Lord of the Rings um, called Schmeagel. If, if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, it's a great book series that was actually turned into um, a set of movies which essentially uh, focuses on this object of incredible and unmatched power. It's, it's a ring. And as the story goes, if someone were to possess this ring, they would have the ability to rule all of Earth. And in the Lord of the Rings, it's Middle-earth. Now, Schmeagel, uh, in this story, is a lowly creature in Middle-earth who one day stumbles upon this ring, notices its power, and keeps it for many, many days. 
and the ring actually extends his life beyond natural limits. And as Schmeagel's life progresses, the ring starts to warp his mind and it starts to warp his body. The ring starts to change him and he develops an obsessive, unrelenting attachment to the ring. And he calls it my precious. And as a result of this attachment, Schmeagel was aggressive or avoiding of any situation or circumstance that he thought might take his precious. Uh, J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, said this about Schmeagel's personality. He would cringe and flinch if they stepped near him or made any sudden movement, and he avoided their touch. But he was friendly, at times kind and agreeable, but indeed pitifully anxious to please. He would cackle with laughter and erupt in dance if he found something amusing, or even if Frodo spoke kindly to him, but he would undoubtedly weep if Frodo rebuked him. And if you've watched the, watched the movies or read the books, you know that in some ways Schmeagel was a kind person, but the ring, his precious, it made him deeply unhinged as a person. Now, I share that story because we can read this text at face value, not knowing the historical context, and we can think that it's about soggy bread and water. But in reality, it's so much more than that. It's a, it's a story about a farmer and his commodity. It's a story about identity. It's a story about idolatry and what it does to us as humans. If you can start to imagine this, this farmer with me without a trust in the Lord, you see a man who is tightly wound, obsessive, controlling, and he's incredibly fearful. Like Schmeagel, perhaps kind and agreeable, but he's anxious about his life. He gets very little sleep. He experiences few deep joys in his life because he is constantly on alert about what might come of his business. When the business is going well, he is comparing and boasting, and when it isn't going well, he feels inadequate and empty. And in our text this morning, you can start to see why the preacher's words in verses 1 and 2 wouldn't just be hard business advice for, for the, the Palestinian farmers at this time. It's not, it's not a matter of just finding new customers to ship to. It's, it's in light of, of these farmers and their identity and their heritage and the society that they're in and the risks that are in their local region, you can start to see that something would have to fundamentally change in this farmer to take heed of the preacher's words in verses 1 and 2. It's interesting, uh, there's a, conver a conversation that kind of circulates among Christians that says, how, how involved is God in salvation? And, and how involved is, is man, is the individual in salvation? And there's kind of two prevalent images that come to mind in that, in that conversation. And the first image is, 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 is it as if we were drowning in the water and we required a life preserver? And God had one and he casted it to us and in an act of desperation we latched onto it. And, and by doing so we were saved. Or was it as if we were dead on the table we were limp, and we needed a new heart, and we needed someone else to give it to us. Well, Scripture seems to validate the latter of those two. Ephesians 2.1 says, As for you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. The analogy is a bit different than our, than our story, obviously, but it highlights how deep the farmer's need is. He does not need good business advice. He doesn't need a life preserver. He needs something else to believe in. He needs something else to trust in, and he needs something, someone else to give him a new heart because it's not something that he can do on his own. 
And what we know about Scripture is that this is not just an issue for Palestinian farmers that occurred 2,000 years ago. It's a human issue. And hopefully in this way this morning, this image of this farmer is relatable to us. Since Genesis 3, humanity has had an identity crisis, much like the one we are seeing in this story. When we have an identity not rooted in the one our Creator has given us, we are so fragile. We're so anxious and scared. And we hold the things that bring us our sense of worth, our sense of righteousness, our sense of meaning, our precious. We hold it close to our chest, just like the farmer does. We are fragile. When the business is going good, we feel accomplished, and when it is not, we feel worthless. When our kids obey us, honestly, we're just surprised. We don't even feel like we're great parents. We're just surprised. Um, But when they don't, we feel like bad parents. When we are liked, we feel validated, and when we're not, it makes us feel worthless. When When we are right, we feel superior, and when we are not, we feel stupid. When we are perceived as successful, we feel powerful and self-sufficient. And when we're not, we feel so small and insignificant. And honestly, the list could go on and on and perhaps in ways that are more relatable to us. But I think it's interesting that if you were to ask the farmer in this story how he was doing, he would probably respond by saying, well, how is the weather? And in that way, how fragile his state is being based upon the weather My contention this morning is that is how fragile our identity is outside of Christ. And it is the economy of a life lived without God. Or perhaps a life lived that is not exercising a belief in the promises of God. So if you were to put yourself in the farmer's position, if if I were to put myself in the farmer's position, as we most certainly are, what would you say is your crop, if you will? Um, recently our MC went through a series called Generosity by Tim Keller, and he called this not your crop, the thing that you hold close to your chest, the thing that brings you a lot of sense of worth and, and, and righteousness and satisfaction. He didn't call it your crop, he called it your commodity. So what is it that you would say is your commodity? What is it that you hold close to your chest? This text is how the farmer is about how the farmer should deal with his crop, but I hope that you can see this morning that it has very little to do with the crop itself, but about the farmer himself. Your commodity and how you deal with it, it points to your identity. What most often consumes your time, money, and energy? Whatever that is for you, and whatever stage or circumstance of life you are in, that is what I believe the Lord is wanting to deal with this morning. And for us in this story, you know, back in this text, the preacher is seeing all of this going on with this farmer. He's seeing all of these dynamics going on, and he's calling him to something better. Again, he isn't just providing a type of business advice, but a way to enjoy life and fear the Lord. So I said that I had three points to my text. The first one is that we are a risk-averse people. And like the, pal- like the farmers of Palestine, We are risk-averse, and the preacher is calling us to something radical. Um, If we could, let's let's continue reading verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Verse 4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow, 
and he who regards the clouds will not reap. There are two ways that farmers and us alike have adopted this aversion to risk, is, is, is what, I'm, what I'm calling it. And, and, it's, and it's, like, it's because of this. Primarily, we inherited it. And secondly, because we learned it. And here's what I mean. Like the farmers have an inherited identity, an inherited business, an inherited values, and in some ways an inherited status. In the gospel, there is a doctrine called inherited sin that says from birth, because of the fall, sin resided in us, and it was our identity. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's the first way. We inherited it. And secondly, this passage in Ecclesiastes shows us that this aversion was also learned. The farmers at this time who would have been the readers lived in a world where they longed to have control and to predict what might happen. In this passage, we see that there are occurrences in life that are, first of all, unavoidable. There are unavoidable circumstances in life. And secondly, there are unpredictable circumstances in life. In verse 3, he says, The clouds are full of rain and will empty themselves on the earth without consulting you. Forces in this world that are not controllable to us will happen, and they are unavoidable. He also says, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, there it will lie. You could be walking beside a tree and a tree could fall to the left or to the right. It could hit you or, or it could miss you. Sometimes the things that happen in this life, they are just so unpredictable. But again, in this passage, the preacher is concerning himself with what all these unpredictable circumstances and risks and challenges are doing to the farmer himself. The next verse says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What is the outcome, the fruits, of a tightly wound, obsessive, and fearful man? Nothing. Nothing fruitful, that is, because instead of focusing on the work before him, he is caught gazing up at the clouds and the wind. I mean, at this point in the story, the farmer isn't even a good farmer. <laughs> He isn't going to reap or sow, as verse 4 says, because his mind is elsewhere. This farmer isn't look, is looking up at the clouds and the wind helplessly and desperately trying to predict what might happen. And I think that you could say as well as I that this is not a man that is going to know freedom in his life. He's not going to know freedom of living his life or relationships or the joy of his work until he realizes that he cannot deal with the things that are beyond his grasp. God does not want to change the circumstances of the farmer. He wants to change the farmer. The final point the preacher is going to convey to us is how we can have access to live more freely. Verse 5 reads, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In these six verses, God is only mentioned once, but he has he and it has far-reaching implications. The preacher is drawing a stark contrast between a human's capacities and the all-knowing God. In verse 2, the preacher says, For you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. In verse 5, the preacher says, As you do not know the way the Spirit makes a child in a mother's womb. And in verse 6, in light of God's absolute knowledge, the preacher says this, In, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. 
the preacher continues to say, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know, but God, he does. And there is not a rogue Adam in his created order. And what does that mean? That means that God is the one who produces the crop. He is the one who makes the clouds. He's the one that calls down the rain. He's the one that provides sustenance. And he is the one that sustains the farmer's life. Tim Keller once said that from Scripture, there are four things about the natural condition of man that we can know to be true. And and that is that it is empty, painful, busy, and that it's fragile. And I think that we can say that we can see these patterns in the farmer's story. And by God's grace, to a degree, we resonate with it. And the good news for us is that this God who produces the crop, who makes the clouds, who calls down the rain, saw us while we were standing in the middle of our fields and came down himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's interesting for our purposes this morning that the New Testament is riddled with agricultural metaphors that Jesus used to discuss sin, to discuss salvation, spiritual growth, in God's coming kingdom. And at the time, many of his disciples and followers didn't understand them. They didn't, they didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and there's this, there's this incredibly intimate um, passage in the Gospels. It's, it's after Jesus' uh, after Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Uh, he knows that he's going to be handed over to be crucified. He knows that Judas has sinned in his heart, and he's sitting down with his disciples at a table to have dinner. And, and, he, and he, he ties a towel around his waist, and he fills a basin full of water, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And, and the disciples respond by saying, Lord, you wash our feet? And he says, yes, he who does not have his feet washed will not be clean. And they say, Lord, but you wash our feet? And he says, yes, he who does not have his feet washed by me, he does not know me. And then they say, Lord, wash my feet, my hands, and my head. Wash it all, essentially, is what they say. And Jesus said, like he often did in in the New Testament, he says, what I am doing right now, you do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. I think uh, that's interesting because a big theme of this passage is the you do not knows in verses 2, 3, and 6. And the reality is that in the gospel, as we toiled in the fields of our lives, or as we are toiling in the fields of our lives, if we're honest, that Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And in that moment on the cross, Jesus became the rescuer that maybe we didn't see coming, but certainly the rescuer that we deeply needed. And my contention this morning is that Jesus, our Redeemer, liberates us. In light of the new identity that we have in him, we are freed to take risks for kingdom purposes because our treasure is no longer in our commodity. Our treasure is in Christ. Now, I think that it's interesting to ask the question, what does a person look like that has turned from their sin and turned to Jesus to trust in him? What what does it look like for a person to take their anxieties and their fears that they have in this life and lay it at the feet of Jesus? And in verse 6 of this text, uh, the preacher says that in light of God's power that we can sow our seed 
and at evening withhold not our hand, for we do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. How does the gospel free us to live differently? How does it liberate us? I have a couple thoughts here as I conclude. Number one, I think that we can live adventurously. Since our commodity is no longer tied to our identity and we see it as good gifts from God, we can ship our crop on the waters, if you will. We can make risky decisions for kingdom purposes because Christ, by his grace, has taken away the eternal risk of hell and so we can now take temporal risks in this life that we live. Secondly, I think that we can live confidently. Since God is in fact in control of all things, and as scripture says, all things work together according to his purposes, we can live confidently, not fearfully, knowing his plan for our life, whatever it entails, will produce his glory and our joy. We can be confident that the slow work of the harvest, the slow work of relationships of our work, will produce a harvest, and ultimately, God will be the one that brings it. And finally, most importantly, I think that we can live generously. Since Christ was generous to us in the gospel, we can be radically generous with our lives. Instead of holding our commodity close to our chest, we can, as verse 2 says, distribute our commodity among the trade routes. We can use all the gifts, talents, and abilities, the commodities that God has given us in this life to move his kingdom forward on earth and serve others. I wanted to um, close this morning with a quote from Eugene Peterson that I thought tied into this text very well. He says this, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, and are citizens under the same governments. They pay the same prices for groceries and for gas. They fear the same dangers and are subject to the same pressures. They get the same distresses and are buried in the same ground. The difference is that with each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know that we are preserved by God. We know that we are accompanied by God. We know that we are ruled by God, and therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. Would you please pray with me? Father, um, Father, we are so grateful that we are not here by happenstance, that our life is not simply a reaction that we are every day responding to, that, that all of life that we see before us is, is comfortably situated underneath the palm of your hand. The God that God, that you are the one that spoke the earth into existence, but that you also meet our deepest needs. Father, um, I pray that we can be a people that can say that we are limited. We are so limited in our faculties. We're so limited in our knowledge. But we live in the hands of the one who is in control, the sovereign king that orchestrates our life. Father, I pray that we would um, have a vision for Jesus and Jesus being our treasure um, and, and the great lengths that Jesus went to so that we could have a relationship with you. Um, it's in your name we pray. 
Amen.